everybody. Hope you're doing great. I'm recording this um, voiceover from a airport lounge on my way to Greece, um, Crete to be exact, and I'm going to be there for at least a, a year or so. Um, so I'm super excited about that. But the last two weeks, I've just been uh, super busy, doing a lot of traveling and seeing people, saying goodbyes and that kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, I moved all my stuff to Substack. Now, what does that mean? I, I talked to a couple of people. So basically, uh, I, I've had this newsletter for about a year, and uh, so and it's hosted on this place called Substack. And um, Substack recently came out with a podcast hosting service as well. So what I did was I moved the hosting service from the whatever service I had before to Substack. Still going to be able to listen to it on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts and uh, a few of the others. Um, so that's still going to be available. But you're also going to have the option to be able to listen to it from uh, your browser window uh, if you want to. And then also what's uh, what I like about it is I'll be able to integrate it with my writing. And, uh, yeah, it just kind of goes on, goes in line with it. There's some things I, I like to talk about or, uh, or I have interviews or whatever, and it's a good podcast format. Other things um, that are good for, for writing. So, um, anyway, that's what we're doing. So, um, you can sign up. Hang on a second. I don't know what I was saying, though. No. I just lost my train of thought. Uh, yeah. Oh, you can just you can just search. Google search the Canon Dispatch at Substack. Um, it's also in the episode description. You'll be able to see the link there. And that's really it. Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, this episode is with Tim Kinsella. Tim is a retired training officer for the U.S. Navy. And uh, you're going to hear, he's got a cool voice because um, he has an Irish accent. And he talks about that talk about all sorts of stuff um he's he even said that he said stuff in this uh, interview that he's never said before on any other kind of interview which is um so it was just it's just a really great thing he retired back in uh, earlier this year and um anyway it was just an awesome uh opportunity to be able to sit down with him we shared a, a pint of guinness in a uh, in a lobby for uh, a golf course and uh yeah we didn't share it, as in, like, we didn't drink out of the same glass, you know what I mean? He had his pint, I had my pint, whatever. Um, one thing I thought was also kind of interesting is I, I talked about in the episode description, like, he's, he's got a lot of, lot of depth and he's a really funny guy, and uh, he, you know, he's, he's Irish and he likes these limericks, uh, and uh, I was doing a, a, just a sound check, and I actually uh, was able to record a piece of of one of these limericks that he memorized, um, I thought it was just really cool. I'm gonna actually here you go. I'm gonna I'm gonna play it right now. Just go ahead and, and we're just talking right now. That way I can see his level. Uh, what need you being come to sense but fumble in a greasy till and add the halfpence to the pence and prayer to shivering prayer as if we have dried the marrow from the bone. All right, let me hear it now. Okay, that uh, that one was from uh, that was a from William Butler Yeats. Um, I don't know if, if it's entitled September 1913 or 
if that's just the date of it and he didn't have a title. I don't know. I guess I should know a little more about that. But uh, you can Google Google September 1913 by William Butler Yeats, and it will be the entire uh, the entire poem. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation and sign up on the Substack. Drop me a line. Say what's up. Uh, I really appreciate you listening. I love you all. We'll talk soon. All right, bye. Is it Kinsella or Kinsella? Um, well, it, it depends whether you talk to my mom or my dad. Okay. Because in Ireland, they say Kinsella. Okay. They run everything together, get together in Ireland, right. um, except for the Guinness. Guinness to keep by itself. Everything else, they run together. Okay. <laughs> and the American way to say it is Kinsella. So my mother says, well, we're in America. You should say Kinsella. My dad says, every time I speak and someone introduces me as Kinsella, he says to me afterwards, how are you supposed to be a Navy officer and people can't even say your name right? So it gets, so uh, usually when I introduce myself, I say Kinsella. Kinsella. Because otherwise people don't know what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. All right, so Skipper Kinsella. Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is really, really an honor for me. Um, how is it that a person like you mm -hmm. who has uh, just a, an Irish accent mm -hmm. is a commanding officer or was, now you're, re you're retired, commanding mm -hmm. officer for the United States Navy. How, what's that? How, how did that happen? Yeah, um, life, <laughs> you know, life just happens. It's funny, um, I can't tell you how many times, I mean, I'll tell you how I got here, but I can't tell you how many times where I'm, I'm flying around the southern Iraq or doing a rescue down the South Pacific or standing on the bow of an aircraft carrier going through the Suez Canal, asking myself, how the hell did I get here? What am I doing here? <laughs> um, so I was born in the States, Irish parents. Okay. Uh, my folks, they met in the States. My dad had a, uh, a pub in Los Angeles, which is still there. He doesn't have it anymore. It's called Ireland's 32. And it was just recently, I just looked it up recently. It was named as the uh, top dive bar in Los Angeles. <laughs> but nowadays, that's, that's cool. A, that's cool. Yeah, it's all it's all where hipsters go. It's, yeah, uh, that's you cool. Know, right. It's, so, so it's cool. Uh, my dad went back there recently with my sister, um, a relative of ours passed away, and he went in there and there were still old guys sitting in the same seat um, 50 years later and they recognized him when he walked in. Whoa. Yeah, pretty cool, pretty cool. So anyway, um, when I was a baby, they moved back to Ireland and we had a, he bought a pub on the street he grew up on, called it the Pebble Beach Pub, and uh, we lived right beside it, and then we sold that. He bought a little hotel, 10-room hotel, just outside Dublin. We lived in three of the rooms at a restaurant, bar, disco. Um, and uh, when I was about 15, they moved back to the States. The economy was really bad. Um, and uh, it was like in the 80s where, where interest rates were going through the roof. So they came back to the States. They, they really had nothing, just starting all over again. And I stayed in Ireland and finished off my uh, high school education. Came over to the States, was going to go to college, we didn't have the money, and we, we didn't have a pot to piss in. Um, so I enlisted in the Navy, actually, funny story, and I talked about this change of command. Um, my dad was playing golf, and he comes home one day, and I'm just over from Ireland, and he says, hey, how, I was going to junior college in Palm Beach. He says, hey, how'd you like to join the Air Force, because he played with an Air Force guy, a retired guy. And I said, uh, I don't know. He says, well, go, there's this place called the Air Force Academy. You should go there. And I said, what's that? And he says, I don't know. You'd go there and learn how to fly planes. So the next day, I go to the Air Force recruiting station um, off of Southern Boulevard in West Palm Beach. 
and there's a line out the door, literally a line out the door. Right next to it is a Navy recruiting station, and there's nobody in there. So I walk into the Navy recruiting station, and I say, hey, do you fellas have a Navy academy? And they're like, yeah, we got a sucker here. So I um, talked to them. I got excited about joining, went to submarines, and I joined with the intent of trying to go to college, just trying to better myself, like mm -hmm. most people do when they join the military, right? right. right? Trying to make something of yourself. And um, got accepted to the Naval Academy by the skin of my teeth. And that was it? That was it, yeah. And then, so when you, after you joined the Naval Academy, did you already have it in mind as far as like, hey, yeah, I think I'd like to, and I'm sorry, hmm. uh, NFO or? I was a pilot, helicopter pilot, okay. helicopter pilot. All right, that's what, that's what I want to yeah. ask. Did you yeah. have it in mind at that? No. no, no, absolutely not. So I was on submarines as a radio man, and I was open-minded. Um, for me, it, it's never been about the rating or whether I was a pilot or a surface warfare person. It was always just the fact that I was in the Navy. When I was a sailor, I was a sailor. I was a sailor first, I was a radio man second. Um, as a naval officer, I always saw I'm a naval officer first, and I'm a pilot second. When I'm flying the aircraft, that's all I'm thinking about. But overall, I'm a naval officer. And when people ask me what I do, I'm a naval officer. Right. Um, I just happened to be a naval aviator. And when I was at the Naval Academy, that was kind of my, my thought. I, I did, however, uh, when I was looking at what I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to do something that I enjoyed because then that makes you better at it. Right. Right? You do something you're passionate about. And when I was in subs, I was on a ballistic missile sub, the uh, Kentucky, Kentucky, and I hated the fact that we were always drilling for something we hoped we'd never do. Mm. I didn't like that. So I wanted to do something that I would get job satisfaction out of. Um, so towards the end, I, I started talking to a lot of aviators. When I talked to SWOs, they'd all say, don't go swole, I hate it. Uh, when I talked to submariners, um, they were all like, they, they were all getting out. When I talked to aviators, all of them talked about how much they loved it. And they loved the community and loved the people. So I gravitated towards the aviators because they were my type of people. Mm -hmm. I got along with them the most. Mm -hmm. And I loved the helicopter community because you were doing things that, were search and rescue, logistics, bringing the mail to folks, um, things like that I liked. I liked because at the end of the day, you could say, I moved this much cargo. I saved this person's life. Um, and I loved the crew concept of two pilots up front and then your crewman in the back and you're working together as a unit. And I. I like the team aspect of the helicopter community. So that's kind of what, what drove me to it. Did, when you were doing it, and did you ever, even after you went to the academy, mm -hmm. and now you're, uh, you know, you're an ensign, yeah. did you ever think, <clears throat> did you ever have aspirations at that point to say, I think I want to go to command? Was that just sort of something that happened as well? Um, I think, uh, yeah, that's a good question. So I'm, I'm ambitious. I've, I've always have ambition. Um, I, I think ambition is a healthy thing. Um, so I don't want to say I had necessarily ambitions for command or, I, I, I want to be a lawyer, really. Um, when I went to the academy, I uh, did political science because I thought I wanted to go into JAG Corps. So that was where my aspirations lay. And then the more I did it, the more I realized, you know, I like this aviation thing. Um, I was working for the uh, uh, Director of Air Warfare in the Pentagon as a, as a flag lieutenant. Mm -hmm. And in the office where he is, they call it the ranch in the Pentagon. It's all the aviators. And the guys that were working there were the best from every community, the best fighter pilots, the best uh, electronic warfare guys, the best you know, guys from the ASW community, the PA community. Um, and I realized, wait, what am I doing? I, I, I had this great job lined up. I said, wait a minute, what am I doing? 
these are the people I want to be around. Right. These are the people that I aspire to be. And something clicked, and I said, you know what, I'm going to make this a career. And at that moment, they said, I want to be a commanding officer. Um, it, it was just sort of an epiphany for me. Uh, but I wanted, being a, a skipper is not a guarantee. It's a pretty selective process getting there. So I wanted my career, I wanted to do things I enjoyed. So if I didn't make command, I could still say that I did my best. And it was a career that I can look back on with pride. Right. Right? And then I was very, very fortunate that the jobs I wanted to do were, were career enhancing. But I didn't do them because they were career enhancing. I did them because they were exciting to me. Right, okay. Um, so making command, getting selected as a commanding officer was a validation for my career. But, um, but, but yeah, I suppose, you know, if, if you're going to make this a business, mm -hmm. I mean, any business, I don't care if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you're going to be, um, you're going to be a drummer and a, you know, anything you want to make a career, you can't just wallow in it and accept mediocrity. You've got to go for the best. You've got to shoot for the stars right. because on that journey of shooting for the stars, you may not never get there but you're going to realize things about yourself and you're going to um uh you, you're going to aspire to things and you're going to reach places that you never thought you were going to reach mm. you know and you might reach the stars i don't know Who knows? so um yeah it, it's so so yeah to answer your question uh yeah yeah I, I i it's something i always aspired to and i always wanted to do my best and make the most of it yeah what um in your life so as you know, from a kid and then adolescent and teenager and college, whatever. What are there any other things that you've done in your life that also, like besides your career, but as far as like sports yeah. or uh, like mute, like any you play an instrument, yeah. like yeah. or any, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Do you like to paint? Do you like sure. to sculpt? Or what? Like, do you have something like that, or yeah. that you've developed? Um, I I always tried in the military to not allow the military to define me. Mm. That it was something I did, but it didn't define who I was. My uniform didn't define me. It's a big part of me. And I realized as I was retiring, I didn't realize how much a part of me it was until I was ready to take it off. But now it's off, I'm fine, it's done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, it was like ripping off the Yeah, the just bandage. a bad egg, it, absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's okay. Like it was an emotional thing, but, but now I'm done. I'm like, you know, this, this is a wonderful 33 years of my life. And now it's okay. It's done. That was that part. Now it's time for the next. But um, there, there are there are constants throughout my life that have been very important to maintaining the sense of Tim, mm. of who I am. Sure. Um, for me, uh, so my sense of Irishness is very important. All right. It's very big. It, it's my family. People say, uh, "Man, you've been in the States for 35 years or 34 years, and you still have an Irish accent." If I would go home with an American accent, they would kick me out the door. <laughs> they would say, you're out of here. We don't even know who you are anymore. Right. Um, yeah. But and it comes and goes. I'm drinking a pint of Guinness now, so it, 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 it brings it back. You, yeah, you, <laughs> what is it that it, you know, they always say, you can take the kid out of the yeah. whatever they're, they're raised, yeah. but you're, you know, yeah. you're never going to take it yeah. from them. And it's, 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 it's the truth. So my, my sense of Irishness very, very much, and... My time spent in Ireland and going to a boarding school there in Dublin was instrumental to, I realize this more and more as I grow up of, of who I am. Uh, golf has been very important to me. Um, it's something that uh, it, it sort of centers me. And it's not so much about hitting the, the best shot. It's just that time away on the golf course. It's mm -hmm. four hours. I, I played golf alone when I was younger a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and that was my 
time away from, you know, I was in flight school. It was away from everybody else in flight school. It was away from the cockpit. It was just me, four hours to center myself and just, just be. Um, I love hiking. I love being out in nature. And I, when I couldn't do that, golf was kind of a substitute for that. Okay. So that golf has, has always been very, very important to me. Um, reading has been very, uh, educating myself as, as much as possible. Um, I'm a curious person by nature. So I, I love um, understanding, especially the, the sort of anthropology of who we are, why we're here, why we are uh, culturally, why, who we are, and, and history, understanding um, the geopolitics of today, looking at it through the prism of yesterday, mm -hmm. um, I, I think is really important. I mean, the, the Ukraine is a perfect, perfect example of that, which we can get into later if you like. But um, so, so yeah, reading history, just reading uh, uh, literature, the arts, poetry, I'd love it. Um, don't do enough of it. Um, I would, um, I'd, I'd played, I try to play guitar. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really bad at it. Mm -hmm. um, but I love sitting down and just plucking away. Mm. Uh, I just got an electric guitar. You know, the, the, I've always wanted an electric guitar. Mm. I would, I've just played the acoustic. And, um, what kind? What kind of guitar do you play? Um, so I have a, an acoustic Martin. Okay. And the so it was actually the, the front office bought me a gift wow. when I left, and it was a Gretsch. Um, wow. Guitar. So it's uh, it's awesome. I just got a just little little twenty watt amp, mm, a yeah. Fender. That's all you need. That's all I needed. Just yeah. put the headphones in, and and it's got like thirty different settings for different. Right, right. Um, it's it's I love it. Mm. But I just sit there and I just lose myself, and it's. You gotta have something in your life that is totally outside of whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. You can't, if you're a family person, you can't spend all your time with your family. You've gotta find something um, outside of that that gives you time to be, just to be, just to think, just for your time for your brain to relax. Um, if you are always around people that expect something from you, that's family, co-workers, whatever it is, you're never relaxing. Mm -hmm. You're never letting go. You're never centering yourself. Um, you have to be selfish about, uh, about your own time. And that's really hard. It's really hard to do. Oh, yeah. um, but if you, if you don't do it, you get burnout much, much faster. Mm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, like there, yeah, there, there have been things in, in my life that I've, that I've sort of been at writing. Um, I write when I can't do it to enough of it, but I really enjoy it. Mm. Um, I like crafting a, a good sentence. Mm. Um, I like uh, telling a story through words, giving perspective, different perspective maybe. Mm. Um, I don't, don't claim to be a great writer, but um, I enjoy doing it, you know. Um, so I guess most of my pursuits are kind of, maybe kind of cerebral. Right. No way, um, but the you know one of the things I, I love looking at and is it's why I asked you is that a lot of things that we do, especially when it comes to the arts like playing music, yeah, or sports, yeah, playing golf, and then piloting an aircraft, mm -hmm. right? There, those are three very different things. However, like you said, in your brain, mm. in your mind. There's yeah. a lot of things that overlap. Yeah. You know? Oh, very much. Yeah. It's like, what is it? Is it the term like, there's learning, but then there's 
meta learning, mm -hmm. which is how do you learn, yeah. right? And then you we sort of we like create these. I'm sort of an anthropology nerd, also. Yeah. So we create these pathways, mm -hmm. right, in our in our brain that sort of pave the way. I mean, is there anything in particular? I don't know. And that, that might be a hard a hard question, I guess. Is there anything particular though that that maybe rings a bell for you? Let's just say when it comes to golf or piloting piloting an aircraft, or yeah, you know, you something clicked there. For so you? well, I'll um, my first time I went to the Pentagon, uh, my first six m months, I was miserable. Mm. Um, I was White House liaison for Secretary of the Navy. Got to do lots of cool stuff, meet cool people, but I was miserable. And I couldn't figure out why. And finally it clicked. Because when you're flying uh, three, four times a week, you get, in, you get in the cockpit and you think about nothing else except for flying. You're doing that. And when you're flying, it's, that's it. That's all you're thinking about, like a sport. When you're playing a sport, all you're thinking about is in the moment playing that sport. Right. And it's a mental release that you're getting. You don't even know you're getting it. Yeah. Um, when I was in the Pentagon, I wasn't getting that. Mm. Working out wasn't doing the same thing. It was just something about that, that flying, but that mental release. Um, so, so yeah, there, there is. Whether you're playing guitar, you're playing a sport, you're flying an aircraft, you're doing something that, that causes you to focus in the moment. Mm and put everything else aside. Mm. And in that, in that focusing on something specific, uh, it, it's relaxing in its own way. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah, because I, all the stressors in your life don't matter anymore. Right. And it's part of that compartmentalization that we talk a lot about. Um, and it, that's, it's so important to, to aviation, being able to compartmentalize, push the extraneous stuff out of your life, focus on the task at hand. Um, it, it's, all, it's all sharpening the mind. It's all uh, how professional athletes, the greatest athletes, are not great because of their hand-eye coordination. The greatest pilots are not great because they can do a loop, or you know, it's because of what's between their right. what's between their ears. It's their ability to focus and concentrate. Right. My dad is 82 years old, and he's still shooting in the high 70s in golf, uh, and he's playing off the you know the regular tees. And it's because he is the most amazing concentration. Um, and when you do that, everything else just falls away. And that's a skill in itself. It is. Like, you, you mentioned the guitar before. I play a little bit of guitar, too. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm also not very good. But, like you said, I like sitting with it. Mm -hmm. And then, whether it's an amp, headphones on, and yeah. I, you know, even if you don't know the, the notes on the fretboard or whatever, you know what sounds good. Yeah. You know what sounds bad. Yeah. And you're sort of figuring things out yeah. like as, as it goes. And then, yeah. and essentially, you're just playing. Yeah. Right? That's all you're doing. Yeah. And like you said before, there's a difference between whenever you're just playing, just to play. Yeah. Because your mind starts developing patterns and it starts doing this thing and it's it realizes it's relaxed it's yeah. having fun or whatever yeah. versus being very if you play it for a long time you start knowing you'd be very technical or whatever yeah. but that sense of play um, I see it a lot and probably we've we've probably read a lot of the same books or whatever too that does talk about that so um, th this is something I've started doing a lot more of is just playing mm. instead of picking a Beatles song and trying to master that just sitting down and playing 
and getting to understand the fretboard, mm. getting to, and when, I say, and when I say play, I don't mean play as in the physical act of plucking strings, I mean play as in a child playing on the playground. Right. Just enjoying yourself. Right. Just, just, just messing around on it. And, and I think, I'm just coming to realize that's really how you get to, that's get really to how learn. You do it. it is. It is. Yeah. Um, um, did you, did you? No. No. Well, well, I'd say it's, it's, it's almost the same with flying. When okay. you're, uh, we used to, um, the South Pacific was great for this. We'd go cloud surfing. You know, and you got these big, especially over Hawaii, you get these beautiful big puffy clouds. And you just fly around the edges of them, in between them, you find a little hole and these big massive puffy clouds would fly around. And you do things with the aircraft that you wouldn't normally do when you're flying, but you learn to push the envelope. You still stay within your envelope, but you're, you're increasing that envelope bit by bit by right, bit. Right. Just, right. just a little bit. Just a little tiny bit, and then right. your envelope gets a little bit bigger. Because you're doing things you wouldn't normally do. Um, so it's, it's yeah. yeah. And I think that kind of play, um, you know, let's just say you're, you are doing a training mission, right? Mm -hmm. And you are doing exactly what you're doing. You're finding these little envelopes or whatever. But as you said, it increases your capability mm -hmm. and, your, and your knowledge and your skill. And then what works out is when you may need that yeah. skill whenever yeah. like you know you're, you're on a star mission yeah. or whatever right yeah you have now developed something absolutely. That you wouldn't have absolutely right yeah absolutely right yeah play is play is so important in every uh, i mean your life if you don't have play built into your life um i don't know how you're living mm. you know, you're, you're 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 not meeting your full potential right you're not you're not being you right. you know weird whenever we become adults everybody thinks that you're not supposed to it's not like we made a choice I'm not playing anymore yeah right yeah it's just just sort of happens. it does life gets serious all of a sudden yeah yeah and then you don't you don't realize how much of a detriment that is to you until you realize it yeah and then you're like that's when it, you know you need to make a change yeah if if you're not, you know. You, you know, uh, humor has been central to, to my life, mm. uh, whether it's it's from growing up in Ireland or or what, but um, I always try to use humor wherever I can because it's, it's the best icebreaker. It's the great leveler to uh, connect with somebody. Mm. Um, the, the, for when I was skipper of uh, squadron, first time I get up for quarters, and um, I'd, I'd start joking around, and I'd make some some smart comment, and everyone's just staring at me. Like, what the hell? I'm a funny guy. Why is nobody laughing at me? Because they don't expect that from the skipper. Yeah. Right? And it took a while. I mean, after a while, they realized, ah, actually, I got it. he's got a sense of humor. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's it's so humor. Also, it, it you know I say it's a great leveler because um, if you can laugh at yourself, then it shows you're human. Right. It shows that you um, you have the capability for empathy, and you have the you you, you, uh, you don't take everything too seriously. Right, right. You know? And and we tend to lose sight of that, especially in our business. Right. You know, folks sometimes tend to take themselves a little bit too seriously. Right. Um, which alienates them from the people that they're trying to lead and the people they're trying to trying to work with. Right. Um, but it's a it's it's a balance, especially when you're. Uh, when you're commanding officer and everyone's like, oh, it's a skipper. Um, and I never looked at myself like that. Right. Uh, it always bothered me when, 
anytime somebody would say, I'd, I'd ask somebody, well, what do you think about this? And they said, well, Scraper, it's your base. And I'd stop them. I said, no, it's our base. Yeah. This is our base. This right. is, we're all in this together. Right. I want your opinion because I need it. Right. Um, same with the squadron. My XO used to say all the time, hey, Skipper, it's your squadron, wherever you want to do. And I forbade him from saying that. This is nobody. This is our squadron. Right. This is ours. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going off topic here. but No, it's, this is, yeah, it's fine. Um, but that, that, that self-deprecating sense of humor, I think, is so important. You don't want to force it. If you can't do it, don't do it. Right. If it's not you, don't do it. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a comedy show. No. You know. No. But yeah, if it works and you can figure out it fits or whatever, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because you, you always still you always still want to keep that sense of gravitas about what it is you're doing and respect for the position. But uh, but humor, humor has been very important to me throughout my whole life, throughout. Uh, just just a way to connect with people and um, sort of a way of of showing folks that I don't think I'm any better than you are. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, I started off at ground level two and I just happened to be here. Right, just to, you know. right. Just, yeah, just like, yeah. I just, I put one foot here and then one foot there and then I yeah. decided to do that because of whatever and yeah. then put it in that yeah. and then here, here yeah. we are, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do remember there was a couple of uh, like meetings or mm -hmm. whatever that we've had and you mm -hmm. were there. I remember like sitting sometimes in listening, mm -hmm. um, and then I remember sometimes you throwing in just a just a little clever whatever it was, and I remember chuckling. Mm -hmm. But I kind of did the same thing as you. Like I looked around, and I was like, like that, that was just me. <laughs> right. Like only I'm the only one that got right. It, you know, right, right. And I was like, all right, right. carry on, carry on. Yeah. You know, and I'm like sitting there listening. I'm like. <laughs> Afterwards, I'll say, oh, hey, did you, did Skipper do this thing? Did you hear that? And they were just like, yeah, no. Nah. Like, yeah. What? Yeah. 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 I, it's real slide, but <laughs> right. I, yeah, I, I think it's great. Same thing. Yeah. I th there, there was some time, I mean, when I first joined the Navy, and I would, I, my, my Irish sense of humor was still very much mm. part of me. And I would see something, and I would throw out something that the folks in Ireland would understand, and everyone would look at me like, and then it, it became suppressed for a while because I knew folks wouldn't understand. There was one in boot camp. Okay. Come in boot camp. And, uh, How do you remember this, by the way? By the way I, have, I don't even remember boot camp, but it's amazing. <laughs> there's, there's little snippets that I remember. Um, I was digging through boxes at my mom's house the other day, and I came across all these pictures of boot camp. And I was like, oh, my God. Forgotten about that. But anyway, so I'm in boot camp, and there was a fella. Um, so there's two guys there. One guy, his name was Ryan, and he was a big guy, uh, and he was from the Bayou in Louise, some place didn't even have a name of a town. It was just like a little collection <laughs> yeah. of houses on stilts in the middle of the Bayou, and that's where he was from, and everybody in the town, their name was Ryan. And I said, Ryan, that's an Irish name. And so he called me Cuz, mm. because since Ryan was an Irish name and I'm from Ireland, then yeah. obviously we must be cousins. Must be. So there's, there's this other guy there. Um, he was in the bunk beside me, and... Um, he was talking about how much he would love to have a cigarette. And I said to him, a couple of the guys are sitting on the deck, and I said, hey, man, I, I thought you gave up fags. And he looks at me and he says, what'd you say? I said, I thought you gave up fags. You told me that you didn't want to smoke them anymore. And he jumped up and he grabbed me and he threw me up against the, the, uh, the little lockers there. And he goes, what the fuck is wrong with you? You trying to say I'd like to suck dicks? I was like, no, man, no, no. And the guy, Ryan, comes over, grabs him, throws him down on the ground, puts his knee on his chest, and he said, you don't fuck with my cuz, man. 
So I'd explain to her, no, fags are cigarettes in Ireland. Right, no, right, right. no. But, yeah, that's happened a few times. Too. That's awesome. Yeah. The, uh, that sort of translation or that thing that doesn't translate, it's still English, the, mm -hmm. the word, mm -hmm. but the American English mm -hmm. is vernacular is so much yeah. different from yeah. that over there. Yeah. In fact, I have to watch a lot of times those things if I watch any kind of programs. Yeah. It has to, I have to have subtitles. I tell you, I, looking back on it now, when I came over from Ireland, I, I think I had a harder time that I gave myself credit for for the transition over here. I miss my friends. I miss my pals. I miss their... We, it's a very deprecating... They call it slagging in Ireland, where you make fun of somebody else. And everyone's... That's, the whole Irish humor is based on making fun of somebody else. Um, and Americans, I found, get very offended right. at that. They're very defensive in it. In Ireland, the mark of um, <laughs> the mark of a great person is somebody that doesn't give a crap what you say to them. Right. It just rolls off their back. Um, so it, it, coming over here to America, the sense of humor is very different. People took themselves a lot more seriously. Um, the um, drinking culture was a lot different. Um, just And especially going straight into the Navy, which is a complete cross-section of America. But I found actually that the, there wasn't a better way to introduce myself to American culture than being in the Navy mm. and having, experiencing the, the, the cowboy, the, uh, the goth, the, um, the city boy, the, the, the city boy, the, I mean, you name it. Yeah. They're all there. You're all in the same division or the same squad together, right. you know, um, and you got to get along together. You got to work together. I think that when it, you were talking before also about like the, like the squadrons and, and the things like that. I think that, Maybe it's the same for you. Within the military, that's been so far as my favorite mm -hmm. aspect is yeah. just the different perspectives and the different, and that's what makes it colorful yeah. and fun yeah. and different. Because it's not this pretty little box that you grew up in. Every your paradigm is always being just yeah. shaking, always growing. You yeah, know? yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, the paradigm of the military person is that they are monolithic. Right. Right. They're, they're, um, they wear the uniform every day and they say, yes, sir, no, sir, um, which couldn't be further from the truth. Right. You know, right. it's, it's, we, we, our military is built on trust. Right. It's, yes, we have a rank structure, but if you don't trust your skipper, that unit ain't going to work. Right. It, it is. Um, you can, I was talking to somebody the other day uh, about leadership. You can take three ships on the waterfront and any ship you go to, they basically have the same people there. It's a cross section of American society with a few, you know, maybe one, one or two uh, uh, differences, but essentially the people in there are the same. And two out of those three ships may be performing miserably. And the third one is just knocking out of the park. Why? Because of leadership. It's leadership that makes the difference. Mm -hmm. um, it's the uh, it's the goat locker. Do you have a goat locker that clicks? Have you got a first class mess that's clicking? Do you have a skipper that knows what the hell he's doing and brings his people on the journey with him instead of just telling them do as I say, not as I do, mm -hmm. right? Um, that and, and leadership starts from the top down. I really believe that. You could have a goat locker that is the best in the world, but if they have an asshole skipper, it doesn't matter a hill of beans. Yeah. Right. 
all they're doing, because they're spending all their time protecting the blue shirts right. instead of working with them to make it better. Um, if you, if, if it, it starts at the top. And it, that works, I'm glad you brought the, the word leadership up because that was one of, the, one of the bigger things that, yeah. uh, that I, I like talking about too and mm -hmm. uh, I like discussing. Um, that same thing that you're saying, you know, it applies to all organizations. It's not just the military. Oh no! Right? It's like you can you can replace the word skipper mm -hmm. with CEO, mm -hmm. whatever, and then you have you know your your you know your your department heads or one level down. I don't even know what that was. Yeah. You know, but it's the same. It's 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 a culture. You know. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, culture is the operative word. Absolutely. Right. The. I guess. I imagine one of the bigger challenges is, so you're being a commanding officer, and you you have this sort of, you have to have this sort of 30,000 foot view of things. You mm -hmm. have to always keep this 30,000 foot view of how everything works, right? But then let's say that you zoom in and you're at a thousand foot level and there's a certain department, a certain group that's not working, right? What have you found to be, to be I say the best way to be able to make that smaller group, that yeah. smaller part of a whole, mm -hmm. operate how you would want to. Sure. Um, so first, let me talk about the great fallacy in the, in, in the military organization where they say, "Know your people, know your people." Um, that's a crock of horseshit. Um, we use this the base for an example. I had I don't know sixteen hundred people working for me. Do I know them? Of course not. There's probably a core of 200 people that I recognize by face, and I'd hope that there's probably 75 of them that I recognize by name. Um, you have to know what motivates them. You've got to know them, know their desires and their wants, and what's going to gel them together to be able to uh, uh, get the outcome that you want. Right. Right. This this horseshit of knowing your people. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know the, the, the name of the wife of the guy that's fixing the ceiling tiles in the swimming pool. Right. I don't, right. and I'm not going to. Um, but I sure as hell know what his job is supposed to be, and I sure as hell know what his mission is and how he fits in mm -hmm. to the overall mission. And you've got to be a bit of a psychologist to be a leader. So what's motivating him? What, is, what are the things that are going to get him to, to reach his fullest potential? Because leadership is... Leadership, in a nutshell, is creating an environment that allows your people to reach their fullest potential. That's, that's all it is. Now, all the things that go into doing that are multiple fold. It's having a vision. It's the training. It's the uh, you know, be, being accessible to them. It's, it's, it's all the stuff in leadership that we talk about. But when it gets down to brass tacks, it's all about making them or creating an environment to allow them to reach their fullest potential. A toxic work environment is an environment that is the exact opposite of that. Right? It's a place where people don't have a voice, where they don't feel like they're part of the, the bigger picture. They don't feel like they're part of the team. They don't have buy-in. They don't have a vested interest in, in being part of this team. So how do you make people feel that they are a vested part of the team? Everybody has a Everyone has needs, wants, and desires. You, you, everyone needs to feel like they are part.
part of whatever it is they're in, that they have a voice. Um, it was, I, I always tried to um, let, so the people I would work with the most were the department heads, and allow them to have a voice. I may not agree with it, I may not be my ultimate decision, but I will always allow them to give me their opinion um, and have themselves heard. Mm -hmm. That's so important. And maybe in that process, they tell me something that I wasn't thinking about. Mm. But when you cut them out of the knees because you think you're the smartest person in the room, you've lost it all. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Right. And that, that's the bit I was talking about trust earlier on um, in, in the military. You, you never create that environment for people to reach that potential unless you have trust going up and down. Mm. First thing I told the department heads in the first meeting was, I trust you. And I, I think I said it to every, every all-hands meeting I did. I trust you because I have to. Not because I'm a good guy, because I have to, because if I don't trust you, I'm micromanaging you, and we're just gonna fall apart because I can't do your job. Right. I gotta trust you to do it. Right. You don't have to trust me. I have to earn your trust. Right. And I hope over you know, the time that I'm here, I do earn that trust. Right. Um, and, I, and I think that's so important, and, and so important to empower them that, they, that it's their choice whether they trust me or not. Right? And, and that I hope I bring them along the journey, whatever journey we're going on in our organization, that I can bring them along with me, mm -hmm. um, that they feel like they have a vested interest in, in, in doing that. Um, that middle managers are so important with that because they're the ones that day to day are, let me give an example of, of trying to, how you bring people along, creating that trust. Um, all the issues we had in the tower, there were, for those of you listening, we had some personnel issues and there were some toxic work environment issues in our air control tower that was detrimental to the people working there and the people, some a lot of people there felt that they didn't have a voice, that there was favoritism, that there was, um, you were living it. I was looking at it from the 10,000 foot level, but this is how I perceived it. And there were people in there that felt, um, they felt threatened in that they couldn't they didn't have a voice. Anything that they said, they were going to be cut out from the legs. We cut out from one of them. So, from a leadership perspective, I felt that I need to do something to create that trust to show that um, we do believe in you and we're doing the best that we can. And um, we fired some folks, and firing them, I, I think, was the right thing to do. But it also, I think, created a an example for that we won't tolerate these things. You know, and it, 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 I think it helped to create maybe uh, a little bit more trust that we were, we're not just gonna let bad things slide, we're gonna do the right thing because they're the right thing to do, you know? Um, but that, that, that trust part is so important. So when you have that little part of your organization that ain't working right, look at the immediate leadership there. What are they doing? Are they, is, is their trust going up and down that chain? Is their, their immediate leadership giving them a voice are they and in our business it's very hard to fire people you can set them aside but then who do you find to right. to move in in their place exactly. right and and again for those of you listening the military is not a uh, a font of personnel where we we have um, our, every person in the military a specific job a specific place uh, and they're detailed there by by big Navy and so when one of those people is taken away without a replacement, it can be very detrimental to the organization because you don't have a replacement for it. Right. 
right? So if you got division, you got chief, and the chief is a dirtbag, and the first class is a piece of shit, what am I going to do? How am I going to, you know, I, I believe in if somebody is capable of taking the next step in front of somebody else, I'll promote them as best as I can and put them in that position. Mm. I'll put a second class in charge of a division if I think he's the right person. Mm. But um, you have to, just creating that, 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 that trust where people feel like they can, they can share ownership in whatever it is that you're doing and that they have a voice. I think that hu the huge perspective, again, the 10,000, 30,000 view of essentially trust, right? Coming from someone like you, you were on a sub, you were piloting, piloting a, a, a helo, and those, there was a different form of trust there that, that came, right? But then as you've gotten uh, old, older and throughout the ranks, you've had to, you see how trust changes. Yeah. So when you've been there and you've seen the things, right, yeah. but now you're in charge of those things, yeah. it gives you like a very acute perspective of what that looks like because you've yeah. been there, right? Yeah. You're not just a guy that just like read a couple of books, you know what I mean? And like, oh, yeah. this is what trust is, right? You've yeah. seen it. Yeah. You know, you've, yeah. you've, you've lived it, you know? Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you something else that, that, that goes with this is the idea of being the leader that your people need, not the leader that you want to be, mm -hmm. not the leader that you watched on, on TV, um, the leader your people need. I mean, that's my pal Pat Coriati, the greatest, the greatest air traffic control <laughs> officer in the face of the world. Sorry, Pat, we're doing a podcast there. We can, we can, press can we pause? Right? Yep. Good. Come here, brother. Okay, I was talking about be the pe person that your, your people need. I'll just give you a quick anecdote that were really hit home to me. Um, just explain for your, your listeners. We had a, a terrorist attack on the base. Uh, three, uh, three sailors killed and nine wounded. And I was going to the scene to release the scene to the FBI. And um, the, my master chief, command master chief, uh, Mario Rivers, was driving me to the scene. A couple of weeks later, I, I said to him, hey, master chief, where were you that day? Because the whole day was a blur. And he says, um, what are you talking about, Skipper? I was right beside you the whole time. I said, oh, my God, you were. And the whole time came flipping back to me. Um, and he said, uh, you know, do you remember we were driving to the scene? I said, yeah. And he says, I looked over to you, and your face was white. Like, he said, it was like marble white. And you had this stony look on your face. And you're just looking straight ahead. And I remember that moment exactly. Because I was trying to steal myself for what I was about to see. I didn't want to go there. I didn't see what I was, I didn't want to see what I was going to see. But I was trying to prepare myself to be the leader that I knew my people needed in that moment. Because if I broke down, if I started crying, if I started, um, if I started doing what I felt like inside, then that would spread like wildfire throughout the command. The skipper's breaking down. And then that mean, that would make it okay. And we couldn't do that at that time. Right. So for me, that was the ultimate moment of being the leader my people needed, being right. the stoic um, person that they could look to and they could say, and, and it, it meant a lot to me that a lot of folks around there 
in, involved in that that day came up to me afterwards and said that I couldn't have done what I did that day. Um, and I felt like I couldn't have done it, but then I looked at you and I thought if I, the skipper can do it, then I can do it. Right. Um, what was it? Uh, one of the, the police officers, our, our, new, our police chief, that day he came up to me and he says, Skipper, you lead and I'll follow. I will follow you anywhere. What he didn't know, so he was getting strength from me, but what he didn't know is the strength that I took from him mm. for him saying that. Mm. So he was essentially saying, I trust you. Mm. You you just keep doing what you're doing, I trust you. Wow. It meant, it, it, it was very, it was very profound for me to, to, to hear that. Right. Yeah. And I think that's kind of another fallacy I think that we oftentimes forget is that, you know, even when you're skipper of a base, boss of a large organization, whatever, people always look up and say, oh, they're fine. Yeah. Right? They're, they're fine. But really, that person uh, is learning, or they're supposed to be yeah. paying attention and being aware and learning from other people, too. You know, yeah. they're not infallible. Oh, absolutely. You know? No, um, we're all just people. Right. You know, you're, you're, you're people trying to get through the day and do the best that you can. And I, I always wonder who's watching the watchers, mm. right? Who's, who's leading the leaders? Who's looking after the leaders mm. that have got... D during that time after the shooting, for the, the, the weeks and months afterwards, one of the biggest uh, investigations in FBI history, um, the weight I felt on my shoulders, I, I felt like my back was going to break at mm. times. Um, it was... They were the darkest days of my life mm. after that. Um, and I leant, leant, is that, is that a word? Leaned? I leaned on my family tremendously during that time, and after a while I realized that that was unfair. It was not right, so I went to my, my priest, Episcopal priest, and I talked to him just, just to try and unburden some things and try and understand some of the things that I was feeling and that. And he said to me, um, he said, you know, you and Jen, my wife Jen, you have a wonderful relationship, and." but it's not fair to Jen that she is your wife and your psychologist. Um, I was like, you know, you're, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. It is not fair because she's dealing with the burden of trying to hold our house together when all this crap was going on. Um, when the hurricane, so a few months out, then we had, we had COVID, uh, then we lost um, Vinny Seegers, who was one of the commanding officers on base and a dear friend and lost him in a plane crash. And then we had a Hurricane Sally, $550 million worth of damages. We were, we had to move out of our house so we could get fixed, the house on base, the skipper's house. And there was, so it was like never ending. It was just kept on getting kicked in the teeth again and again and again. And COVID. And yeah, and, co and COVID as well, between all that and trying to, just everyone knows how COVID felt, how it was just like this, this heavy blanket of, depression over everybody. So um, there was a lot of untruths that had come out about the, the terrorist attack. And there was the, the Navy was about to make a press release about it. And the press release that was being done by the folks in DC, it was, it was so wrong. It was full of untruths. And it was placing blame on people here on the base who actually did brilliantly and were praised by the FBI. So it, it was so off base. So I called up 
um, and I, I'd read the Navy's uh, investigation report for, and the investigation even disagreed with what the public affairs folks were going to say. And I couldn't believe this. I was like, somebody's got the, somebody doesn't have the full picture here. Mm -hmm. So I called my admiral, and, I, and I, I never send an email in anger, and I never make phone calls in anger. But I sent this email to my admiral in, in anger, respectfully in anger. And we, we talked and on the phone. He's like, you know, Lucky, um, you know how it is, man. You know, you, you just got to, sometimes we don't agree with the outcome of investigations. And I said, Admiral, this, this is not the outcome of the investigation. So I was really frustrated because I knew the damage it would do to the people on the base um, because it was placing blame where it didn't belong. Um, so after that conversation, I was driving to the base and I, I broke down. And I, I just started crying in the car. It was just the weight of it. And then at that point, I realized I need some help. Um, so I, I, I went to see, like, mental, I called the CEO of the hospital. It was a friend of mine. I said, hey, man, can you just on the low get me, a, get me an appointment with the mental health doc? So I did, and I went to see him, and for about a year, I went to see this mental health doc once a month. Mm -hmm. um, and it was instrumental. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the need for it. I was ashamed to go, um, just because of my own expectations for myself. I'm like, God damn it, I'm the skipper of this base. I shouldn't be acting like a fucking baby. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't giving myself any grace. I was giving all the people around me grace, but I wasn't giving myself any grace. Right. And that was a much, very much a learning process for me. Um, but it was a uh, very profound process for me to go through, to just talk about these things. Um, every time I I'd go home and I'd debrief with my wife, but I wasn't asking her for help. I was telling her things we talked about so she'd understand it more too. Correct. Um, it brought me closer to my family. It brought me closer to my wife. Um, it helped me prepare myself to still be the skipper for another two years because the shooting happened so early in my time here. And I said to, pretty soon after the shooting, I said to my boss, um, like, Admiral, you know, I don't know how I'm going to be the skipper of this base for another over two years. Because I'm going to be dealing, I'm going to be the only person on this base that was here in a leadership position for this, right. and I'm going to have to bear the brunt of this for the next two years. And he laughed at me because I think he didn't laugh in a mean way, just more like, "Yeah, you're right, but tough. That's yeah. the way it is." Right. Um, so learning how I could deal with that was um, a very profound learning experience for me. How to look after yourself mentally physically, I did a bad job of it through all those crises. Um, and I had to learn, I had to retrain myself to look for the joy in your life mm. as often as much as possible. Because ev everybody's got a, a bucket of joy and you have to be filling that bucket up all the time. Because when crisis comes, you take from that bucket of joy until it's empty, and you're gonna go beyond empty. And if you don't know where you get that joy from, you've got nothing to look forward to. 
And so when you finish, if you haven't been filling that bucket up before the crisis, when the crisis is finished, it's going to stay empty. Right? So you've, you have to joy, and I don't mean joy as in uh, buying a nice suit. Joy is, joy is, happiness is when you buy a new set of golf clubs. Joy is when you hit that perfect four iron that lands three inches from the hole. Oh, right. Um, happiness is, uh, you know, just knowing that you're going to spend a day with your kids. Joy is when you drive into the driveway and your kids come running out to meet you. Right. You know, there's, there's a difference. Right. And it's the joy that you're finding. It's right. the joy that you're trying to look for. Hey, sometimes you find it when you're just sitting in the corner strumming on the guitar. Right. You know, you just get in that zone right. and it fills your heart. Right. And that, that is, that's what makes us human. And it's, and and we, it's, it's getting back to the idea of play, right. and we forget that. It's so easy to forget it because it's not right in front of us. You gotta go out and search it, you gotta find it. Um, and that's one of the things I'm trying to do more in, in after leaving the Navy is, is get more joy in my life. Uh, so having to sort of immediate transition into civilian life, right? Mm -hmm. um, Oftentimes, when people are like have this high performance career like you, like you had, and then all of a sudden, it just mm -hmm. right. A lot of mm -hmm. people have a hard time dealing with that. Right? Yep. It, have you had to make like put things in there to make sure that you're you know stepping off of a high instead mm -hmm. of like falling off of this high? You know what I mean? Yeah. Have you had to like purposefully implement things to do that way? I'm no no no. Um, I think it goes back to remember I said. I, I always try to never allow the Navy to define me in, in who I am. If you allow the Navy to define you and you associate who you are with what you're doing in the Navy, whether it's a, you know, you hear it guys who are, they're, they're an admiral or they're a skipper and then they, they leave and then they're just lost, right. right? Because they don't have that sense of purpose anymore. Right. Well, you were drawing your sense of purpose from the wrong places. Mm -hmm. Your sense of purpose should be something that follows through your life no matter what your job is. Your sense of purpose should be tied into your identity. So, um, for me, you know, my, my honestly, my sense of purpose is is that I believe no matter what you do, no matter where you go, be useful. Don't be a. Don't be a. a um, that's what I'm looking for. Like, don't be a net decrease. Be a net gain okay. to wherever you're going. Right. Right. So, um, I feel my job is not as right I'm the director for the Center for Leadership at um, University of West Florida and I feel so blessed to be able to do that but I'm not in charge of anybody it's all very intellectual the center exists in my head because I'm the only person in it right now right. <laughs> um, but it the opportunity to do things in the community uh, are great so I can still feel I'm useful I can still feel like I can try and move the community, the needle of the community forward just a little bit, just a tiny bit. Um, and as long as you always feel like you are, you are added value, no matter what it is you're doing, then I think you're, that, that, that gives you that sense of well-being, that sense of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worth something, I got a sense of purpose. Um, if you tie that to your job, uh, you're missing something. That you mentioned the center for leadership thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so is that 
it be like a part of their business school? Yeah, it's part of the um, uh, UWF School of Business, mm -hmm. or College of Business, I should say, and it's a it's a whole separate department that we're standing up. Um, and, and I'm very fortunate because the leadership, you know, something I'm passionate about, right. um, something I, I, I think is is critical to human race and our success as a human race. Um, but we're going to have a executive MBA with a focus on leadership, and then we'll be doing uh, executive leadership seminars. But then also we, we want to be a form or, or an engine for um, positive societal change in, in Pensacola here. So we're, we're going to be, our, our academic stuff, the MBA and the executive leadership seminars will be on a national scale, so we'll be you know, advertising all around the country. But we also want to really try and help move the needle here in Pensacola, whether it's housing, education, uh, be a, be a nonpartisan, um, safe place for the business community and elected officials to come together to, to try and move forward in the same direction. And I, I, I was able to, um, I was very fortunate in that the community gave me a voice when I was commanding officer here. So I want to continue that and try and leverage the, the relationships that I made here to try and move that needle a little bit here in the mm -hmm. community in, in any way I can. Um, and I have no illusions of grandeur that you know I'm the guy that's going to do these things, but if I can connect the people together that will, then, then maybe it'll help a little bit. It'll help a little bit. Is there any way, or is there any, any place online or anything that I can direct people to, to anything that directs people to you, mm -hmm. or anything that you're doing there for right now? So we, we haven't set up our uh, website yet. I mean, we are early days. We're only, I was only hired a couple of weeks ago. But if you go to the University of West Florida College of Business, um, that's where it's going to be housed, under the UWF College of Business. Um, so uh, look out for it in the future. I th I'm, I'm excited about it. I think we've uh, we got a lot of big ideas, a lot of big things you want to do. Nothing changes in a, in a day. Rome wasn't built in a day, but um, like I said, if we can... If we can help move the needle a little bit to make this a better community. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we I talk about community. I think we as a society have moved towards individualism and away from communalism. Right. Not communism, communalism. Right. As in, uh, uh, COVID really laid that bare. Mm -hmm. Because we thought about COVID in, in ourselves as in ourselves, whether, how is it gonna affect me? I'm going to take a, a vaccine, I'm not gonna get a vaccine. Um, it was all about how did it affect me, not the, how did it affect the greater community. Mm -hmm. uh, even politics was directed on, on me, 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 not us, us, us. Mm -hmm. um, America was a, for, for certain parts of the, of the population, a very communal organization. It was an agricultural, communal, and then we developed since the, pretty since the 1960s, bit by bit, to be more individualistic. So I, I try to think and try to push the idea of communalism, trying to, and that, that involves collaboration, working with each other, learning from each other. Um, because when, when our mutual agendas meet, that's when the magic happens. That's when we can do great things. When we try and do everything alone and by ourselves and think only of ourselves and not of the people around us, that's when we devolve into individualism and tribalism. And the tribalism is when we focus on each other's differences. Co 
communalism is when we focus on each other's similarities and the things that bring us together as Americans, our constitution, um, are, are all the wonderful things that make us exceptional on this earth are the things that we should be focusing on um, so we can move forward as a, as a people. I love it. Skipper, it's been a huge pleasure for me. It's been great. I can tell you from, from my level of working with you, Thanks, and I know all, all of that, you know, um, what you were talking about before, I know that the self-doubt and stuff like that, but for me, I thought you did a fantastic job. Thank you. So, and it was a huge pleasure for me to work with you, and it's a huge pleasure for me to talk to you now, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks, brother. And I wish you tremendous luck and uh, good fortune. Yeah, the same to you, and um, I'm just glad you're going to be closer to your family. Me too. That's a great thing. Me too. That's a great thing. All right, everybody, good talking to you. All right, thanks, Skipper. Thanks, pal.